coming up on Philosophy Talk. To love is to suffer. To avoid suffering, one must not love. But then one suffers from not loving. Therefore, to love is to suffer. Not to love is to suffer. To suffer is to suffer. Have you ever been loved unconditionally? Shouldn't we be loved for what we are and what we do? Can mere human love really be unconditional? My dog gives me unconditional love. Everyone else, not so much. Is there really such a thing as unconditional love? Our guest is Lynn Underwood, editor of the Science of Compassionate Love. I will love unconditional love. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm not, but I am John Perry. And we're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. We're continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner down the street at Stanford, where Ken and I are professors of philosophy. And today we're going to philosophize about love, specifically about unconditional love. A rare and difficult thing, Ken. Really? Think about parental love. Don't you think that's unconditional? Well, parents profess to love their children unconditionally and sometimes do a pretty good job, but there are limits. And how often do children really test those limits? Well, think about romantic love. Don't you think that can be unconditional? Oh, couples in the first blush of new love may make dewy-eyed promises to love each other for better or for worse through thick and thin. But how often do such promises give way to betrayal, recrimination, divorce, alimony, and all that okay, stuff? Hey, John, you have a point there, but you got to admit that when unconditional love happens, it's an amazing thing, and it's a gift we all want. We all want someone who will love us forever, through thick and thin, no matter what we do or who we become. Well, eternal love, I guess, would be nice, uh, but isn't that a little bit different from unconditional love? That's, that's, that's love that, whether it lasts forever or not, while it lasts, it has nothing to do with who you are. Well, unconditional love is the highest form of love. I mean, most re religions recognize that, too. That's why they attribute unconditional love for all mankind to God. It's why Christ commands Christians to love thy neighbor as thyself. Cool thing, John. Well, you know, you can take the boy out of Notre Dame, but you can't take the Notre Dame out of the boy. Uh, unconditional love would be easy for God if, if he existed. He would have infinite patience. He would have boundless capacity to forgive. You couldn't hurt such a God, not really. But humans aren't like that. We're vulnerable. In us, too much hurt, betrayal, or disappointment can kill even the deepest, most enduring and sincere love. Now, you're focusing on the work it takes for us to give or to sustain unconditional love. I admit that that's a hard thing. It's not an easy thing. But think, about, think more about what it's like to be the recipient of such love. Now, that's undeniably a good thing. Well, I'm not so sure it's all you're cracking it up to be. People want to be loved for who they are and, and what they do, don't they? I mean, if somebody loves me unconditionally, does that mean they don't really care about all I've accomplished and all I try to do and how lovable I am? No, no, no. Just because you love somebody unconditionally, that, that doesn't mean you don't care about who they are or what they do. You don't care about their particularity. That doesn't mean that at all. You want them to be their best self. You, you might even believe that your loving them will help them to become that. Loving unconditionally means, I think, you don't withdraw love when things go badly, when you're betrayed or hurt. 
Yeah, but if if bad behavior doesn't have consequences, doesn't that mean that the lovers just become a patsy? I mean, think of battered women who won't give up on their abusive partners. Is is that kind of your paradigm of unconditional no, love? No, that's not. That's self-destructive love. Love unconditional love doesn't have to be self-destructive and plus it doesn't necessarily involve a kind of passive acceptance and blind forgiveness like you're imagining. Unconditional love can be tough and demanding too. I mean, think of our children. When they do bad things, we punish them. We we give them stern messages, but we still love them. We punish them because we love them. Our, our punishment is actually an act of love. Okay, so your idea of unconditional love is kind of selfless love, the kind of love that never asks what's in it for the lover. I don't ask what's in it for me. I ask what's in it for the person I love. What I, what I need to do is to make the life of the beloved better, no matter what the cost to myself. Well, that's pretty much how I'm thinking of it. But, you know, I would add something that may sound a little paradoxical. When you, act, when you love somebody unconditionally, it actually puts you in a unique position to actually hold them to high standards. Because then your, your complaints, your punishment, your criticisms, those themselves are acts of love. They're generous gifts. Yeah, it's a pretty picture, but I doubt that most human beings are capable of the kind of selflessness you have in mind. For most of us, the self will get in the way. I mean, even when we think we're acting out of selfless devotion to the other— if we dig down, we'll find some hidden selfish motives. I, mean, I, I think you're underestimating people, John. I think people, at least some people, actually have an amazing capacity for selfless love. Amazing. No, I'm being a realist, Ken. We tell ourselves that romantic love is selfless, but romantic love wants to be reciprocated. That makes it almost the opposite of selfless. Besides, nobody really deserves the kind of love you're talking about anyway. Nobody has a right to demand that you love them selflessly. That would be selfish. Well, you're right about that. But that's because unconditional love is a gift. It's not an entitlement. Christ commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves, not out of a sense of duty and obligation, but out of a sense of selfless generosity and, and, and charity. Well, that's a nice-sounding ideal, but frankly, I really doubt it applies to most people most of the time. I'll go back to parents I mean, the, the, and their love for their children. Think of all the things children put their parents through while the parental love still endures. Don't you think most parents, many parents, all parents, love their children unconditionally? Maybe, maybe not. But, but I do, I, I'll give you this. If we're going to find unconditional love anywhere, it will be in the love parents have for their children. That's why we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Esch, out to talk to a man who has thought and written a lot about the challenges and demands of parental love. She files this report. Andrew Solomon wrote the book on unconditional love. Unconditional love, so far as I'm concerned, means that you love someone and there's nothing they can say or do that would actually destroy the love. It might be terribly upsetting, but you can't withdraw from the relationship entirely. Solomon is a writer. His book is called Far From the Tree. It's about children who are different. He interviews parents of children with autism, schizophrenia, or dwarfism. Solomon talked to hundreds of people over a decade. Take Clinton Brown, who was born with diastrophic dwarfism. When I was born, my mom didn't see me for three days. She was scared. The doctors gave her a paragraph in a medical dictionary that described what I was, from a medical standpoint, a paragraph. That was all they had. Said he would never amount to anything, his mental capacity would be little to none, and you should probably give him up and think about adoption. Instead, Brown's parents decided to raise him. He was physically deformed but smart. 
He ended up being the first in his family to attend college. Writer Andrew Solomon recalls talking to Brown's mother about the time she caught him drinking at a bar with his college buddies. She thought, okay, he's three feet tall, they're six feet tall. Two beers for them is four beers for him. He's going to drink and it's, he's going to go out in the car and he's going to get, she said she was beside herself. She left him a bunch of messages on his cell phone. And then she thought, oh, if someone had told me when he was born that my fear would be that he'd go out drinking and driving with his college buddies, I would have been so happy to have that problem. Then there's the story of Deirdre Featherstone and her daughter, Catherine, who was born with Down syndrome. Here's Deirdre. The minute she was born and she was put on my stomach, I thought, Fine, I'm okay. This is the nicest spirit I have ever met, and we're going to be fine. And then, you know, the, the diagnosis of Down syndrome came later, and, you know, it's, you, you sort of get what you get, and you go from there. Today, it's easy enough to find out during pregnancy whether a child has Down syndrome, and some couples do end the pregnancy. Andrew Solomon describes himself as an abortion libertarian. He believes everyone should have unfettered access, but he says he worries that couples make this decision without fully understanding how lovely kids who are different can be. And Deirdre said something that sort of summed the whole thing up. She said, all my friends had these children they thought were perfect, and since then they've had to deal with their limitations and challenges. I have this child who everyone thought was a disaster, and all the surprises since then have been happy ones. I'm lucky to have had her in this particular period of time. I'm lucky too. In... Thank you. I'm very lucky too with my mom and I'm so excited. Solomon also talked to the mothers of criminals like Sue Klebold, whose son Dylan, along with Eric Harris, murdered 13 students at Columbine High School in 1999. Dylan and Eric then committed suicide. I said it must have been awfully hard to love him once you knew all of that. And she said no. She said it was hard to understand him. It was hard to forgive him. It was hard to deal with what my life became in the wake of it. She said, but loving him, that part was always easy for me. Solomon tells stories of women who conceived after being raped. In Rwanda, a whole generation of children were born out of extreme violence. They're called the children of bad memories. Solomon recalls one woman in particular. At the end of the interview, when I said, do you have any questions for me, expecting her to ask, will this be published in French, or how long are you staying here, or something like that, said to me, well, you're in this field of psychology, right? Can you tell me how to love my daughter more? Because I want to love her so much. But when I look at her, I think of what happened to me, and it gets in the way. And afterwards, I thought to myself that it was an incredibly loving question to be asking. Solomon started his own family with his husband, John, while he was writing his book. And he's learned that most parents are capable of loving any child, no matter how different. But if some glorious angel dropped through the ceiling and said, I can take them all away and give you other nicer, better, more attractive, funnier, smarter kids, I would cling to the children I have with their flaws because with their flaws, they are the people whom I love. If that's not unconditional love, then what is? For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. You can listen to the rest of this program by purchasing it at iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.